This evening we are beginning a series in which we'll be looking at some crucially important subjects. Relationships, sexuality, and identity. And we're doing this series because we're living in a time where our culture has a lot to say on these issues, not all of which is helpful. And it is really important for us to understand God's perspective. He created humankind. He's revealed his design and will through creation, through the Bible. And the reality is that understanding and living out what he has to say on these issues is the most sure way to flourish as human beings. We're aware that touching on sensitive areas like relationships, sexuality, and identity has the potential to make some of us feel a little uncomfortable, especially when the subject affects us deeply. But we want to assure you that those of us who speak during this series will be taking great care to be thoughtful, biblical, open-minded, and kind. Many of us here, and certainly people in our city, will probably have vastly different views on these subjects. But I hope that wherever you are at on the subjects of God and relationships, sexuality, and identity, you'll hear throughout the series that this is a church where you are welcome and is a place where we can explore these topics openly and without judgment. The series is based in part on one which a friend of mine, John Tyson, did recently, along with a considerable amount of other research and insights. And we're mindful that we're aiming to address some very complex topics within very limited 30-minute talks. And so during the series, there'll be a resources stand in the Connect area where you might like to access some books and websites and resources that go deeper into some of these subjects. As complex and personal as the subjects this series will explore are, it is important that we discuss them given the rapidly changing culture in which we are living. In just two generations, our culture has experienced extraordinary changes in the way that we view relationships, sexuality, and identity. Many of us here would probably have different views to maybe our parents, certainly perhaps our grandparents. Let me pick a few things which just illustrate my point, particularly regarding sex and sexuality. 42 years ago, a woman had to be married in order to receive free contraceptive pills from the NHS. They weren't available if you were single. Until 2003, there was a television show called Blind Date. Some of you are as old as me and you remember that, where hopefuls wooed potential partners by giving clever responses to questions while hidden behind a screen. Three years later, in 2006, a television show began that's still running on Channel 4, where the choice is, how should we say, far from blind. Uh, the person choosing selects from candidates who are completely naked. The one selected then puts their clothes back on and they go off on their date. The internet hosts numerous sites like Illicit Encounters, whose slogan is, married but looking for more, find passion, have an affair. And then they connect people who want to do just that. Smartphones provide instant access to so-called dating apps like Tinder a means of finding someone attractive to you, close to your current location, who wants a date. And its reputation would suggest that some such dates may often be brief, dispensing with the choice of a movie or a restaurant dinner and getting quickly to the real reason that they have met up. 
Pornography, once limited to top-shelf magazines, is now not only far more explicit than ever, but it's available at the click of a computer mouse or a finger tap on a smartphone. Our culture has been persistently moving in a direction that seeks to make sex and sexual gratification more available, convenient, and immediate, and this trend is set to continue. For example, as technology develops, it is rather scary in the areas of artificial intelligence and robotics, there's a growing business now in the development of pornographic virtual reality environments and robotic sex dolls. If the explosive growth of pornography that was catalyzed by the digital revolution is anything to go by, this could have enormous impact on humanity's sexual behaviors in future years. And that's probably enough information to illustrate the point. We're evidently in a time of rapid cultural shift. And it's important that we don't put our heads in the sand hoping that we somehow won't be affected. When it comes to sex and relationships, those outside the church, even some in the church, have seen Christians and God, God really, as the great spoil sport. As Christians, our views have at times been thought of as old-fashioned, outdated, kind of harmless, but more recently are being thought of as harmful. And throughout history, the church hasn't done itself any favors. Let me give you an amusing example. During the Middle Ages, some church authorities issued edicts forbidding sex on Thursdays, the day of Jesus' arrest, Fridays, the day of his death, Saturdays, Sundays, some Wednesdays, the 40 days of Lent, Christmas, Pentecost, and some other feasts, to the point that 88% of the year was unavailable for the religiously obedient, leaving just 44 days left in the Christian calendar that married couples could have church-sanctioned sex. Evidently, those who wrote such religious rules hadn't read their Bibles very carefully, going to extraordinary non-biblical lengths to restrain things. It's unsurprising then that somehow people have been given the impression that God doesn't like sex, is generally disapproving of it, and that the church is rather prudish and uptight about it. I wonder how many of you have ever heard a sermon like this one. As we shall see later, the Apostle Paul does address sexual immorality in the church, sexual expression which doesn't align with God's design, as he teaches God's desire for those who are committed to him. But he also writes in 1 Corinthians 5.12, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Those of us who are followers of Jesus are exhorted to surrender every part of our lives to God's will. But it's not reasonable or biblical to require our non-Christian friends to do so. And let's be honest and admit that in reality, not one of us has fully surrendered every part of our life to God's will. We are all on a journey, aware, if we're honest, that we fail regularly. But we are called to invite others with us on that journey, careful to avoid any impression those exploring faith might perceive that God disapproves of them. One of our pastors was recently talking to an 18-year-old who'd just given their life to Jesus. And this single young person asked, was it really not okay to have sex with people? Why would God make this really fun thing for us to enjoy and then be cross with us for enjoying it? We live in a culture where people are sometimes surprised to hear that living out a Christian faith involves boundaries in the way we practice our sexuality. Sometimes people come from a different angle. They aren't shocked that Christians seek to submit to a different sexual ethic to society at large. Their issue is that they expect 
to be rejected by the church before they've even set foot through the door. Those who might feel drawn to consider God and faith could sense that the church isn't going to be a place of welcome if their lives have not matched the sexual standards that God or the church apparently hold. If that describes you, if your experience of church has led you to feel marginalized or judged, I want to say to you, I am really sorry. If you're here and you feel like you're struggling with God and sexuality and how these fit together, whether it's your sexual orientation or your gender identity, our culture and its stereotypes, your relationship with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, what your peers are saying about you or what you think about same-sex marriage, if you're just here and you're struggling, you are welcome here and you're not alone. If you follow Jesus and you read the Bible and think, whoa, my friends at work all say this is bigotry. My student friends, especially if I'm at school, my school friends, you're not alone. If you feel guilt or shame in this area, you are not alone. In my own life, if I go back a few decades, I had a girlfriend who is now my wife. I was a Christian. She was a Christian. We were dating for over four years. And we knew what the Bible revealed about God's will that we should wait for marriage before we consummated our relationship physically. But our raging hormones and our selfish desire to do what we wanted more than what God wanted led to our giving in to sexual temptation. We had seasons of sleeping together and then stopping because we knew it was wrong and then only to give in again. Knowing that we were living in a way which was out of line with what God intended for us was actually pretty miserable. And I used to pray very briefly each night, just like a two-word prayer. That's all it was. Sorry, Lord. Knowing that tomorrow I would carry on doing what I was doing. I knew God was real. I'd enjoyed closeness to him, but my deliberate disobedience created a distance in our relationship. And deep down... I knew I was not being, I was not becoming the person I was called to be. I was apparently happy on the outside, but inside I was struggling. And Debbie, who has now been my wife for 36 years, felt the same. If you are aware, perhaps, that you're living life with a public face, which appears to be sorted, while in secret you know you're struggling with some temptation or some behavior, you're not alone. If you feel like if anyone really knew, you're not alone. And you are welcome here to process all of this with Jesus and this church. Rather than an environment to avoid or suppress our sexuality, I believe God's desire is that the church should be a community of people seeking to understand, celebrate, and appropriately express the sexuality that God has given us. Because the truth is that God is the creator of sex and sexuality. In the opening chapters of the Bible, we read that God created Adam and Eve, that they were naked and unashamed. God created us in our physical sexual bodies. He knew all the parts, beautifully put them together. And he said, it is good. And then have you ever noticed what God's first command to Adam and Eve was? Genesis 1, 27, God created mankind in his own image, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful 
and increase in number. Well, how do you practically go about obeying that command? Well, in other words, you know, go and have sex. That's his command to the first married couple. Evidently, God is no prude. And of course, this is before the fall. We were sexual before we were sinful. The first person to think a sexual thought was God. Sexuality is part of our makeup and part of his design. But as we've heard this evening, this has become distorted from God's vision. And this is what Paul is addressing, the Apostle Paul, in a passage we're going to look at together, written to the church in Corinth, a city in Greece, 2,000 years ago. Some of the believers in the church were continuing with sexual practices common in that society among the pagan religions of the time, including sleeping with prostitutes as part of that religious worship. And Paul challenges the believers to reject the cultural norms of their time for God's design. So by looking at what Paul said to the Corinthians about one of their cultural blind spots, we can learn how to deal more adequately with our own and be reminded of God's vision for sex. So we're looking in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. One Corinthians six, we're beginning in verse thirteen. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ Himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him. In spirit, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins people commit are outside their bodies, but those who sin sexually sin against their own bodies. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So what does this passage have to tell us about sex and sexuality? Firstly, sex and sexuality shape who we are. One of the most dominant cultural narratives in recent years is that our sexual appetites are just like any other appetite, a physical craving that we want to get met. And we're told that we can sleep with whoever we want, whenever we want, as long as we're both consenting adults. It's just sex, they would say. It's just sex. Who's ever been hurt by a little bit of sex? But I would maybe ask, who hasn't been hurt one way or another because of broken expressions of sex and sexuality? Almost certainly we or those close to us have experienced painful things like feeling used, being cheated on. Perhaps it's through adultery or infidelity, marital breakdown, divorce, issues relating to body image or rejection. Whatever it is, all of us have been shaped in some way by our experiences and broken experiences of sex and sexuality. Andy Stanley tells us that in the Bible, sexual sin is in a category of its own, not because it's particularly offensive to God, but because it injures the sinner at the deepest level. We see this in verse 18. 
flee from sexual immorality. All other sins people commit are outside their bodies, but those who sin sexually sin against their own body. When Paul talks about our bodies here, he's not just talking about our physical form, but the whole of us, our mind, our soul, our personality. And so in other words, whoever sins sexually sins against themselves. The best understanding of this phrase literally means whoever sins sexually distorts their personality. Sinning sexually, going against what God has designed as appropriate sexual expression, doesn't just touch on behavior, what we do. It deeply shapes who we are. John Tyson notes that every passage in the Bible about sexuality understands its power for formation and gives us prohibitions to save us from deformation, being deformed. The warnings in the Bible around sex, he says, follow the teaching of the goodness of sex. It is something to protect, powerful and fragile. The warnings are not something put in place to restrict our freedom. Sexual sin shapes us, deforms us. It distorts who God has created us to be. So as we go through this series, the question we might ask is not so much about what is right and wrong or what we can do, what we can't, but who are we becoming? Who are we becoming? How is this activity, this behavior, affecting us and shaping us? Let me show you what I mean by touching on the subject of pornography. Regular porn use can affect users in a number of adverse ways, of which I'll just touch on a few. It's affecting the kind of sex that especially young people are seeking, informed by the often degrading use of another person's body. It can overstimulate pleasure receptors in the brain, which can lead to a form of addiction. The pleasure sensors become desensitized, requiring even greater levels of stimulus to get the same effect, and that can go into dark places. It is adversely affecting and sometimes outright destroying sexual experience within marriages. Pornography, with its intensity of exaggerated sexual imagery, can render making love with a real, imperfectly formed partner insufficiently arousing to enable normal sexual function or even insufficiently stimulating to bother with. And for partners of porn users, the knowledge that the person they love and trust is being visually stimulated by another person can shut down their sexual desire. One study showed that porn use was a factor in over half of divorces. That reality is not, of course, limited to married or committed couples. Recent reports suggest that millennials are having less sex than the previous generation, in part influenced by the prevalence of pornography. An article in the New York Times quoted one porn user as saying, who needs the hassle of dating when I've got online porn? I mention these things because pornography is a growing issue for society and I mention it in church because being a Christian does not shield us from it. If you're someone who struggles with pornography, whether you are male or female, first of all, let me assure you, you are not alone here. The statistical reality is that there will be many here this evening for whom this is a significant issue. And for most of us for whom it isn't, we are all too personally aware of the power of temptation in this area. 
I hope it won't surprise any of you to know that as a pastor, I'm not exempt from sexual temptation. And despite my being careful in this area, there have been times when a sexually explicit photo has got through my filters, has come up on my screen. And in my best moments, my eyes have bounced straight off it. But I confess to my embarrassment that there have been times when I have failed to avert my eyes as quickly as my conscience called for, captivated for a moment by the power of that image. My taking care to steer clear of pornography is not because I would, it wouldn't be of interest to me. I fear its power. I've never clicked on a pornographic website, but if I did, it's quite possible that I could find it so enticing that I would be in danger of falling down the slippery slope and becoming enslaved by it. I don't want to go there. And I've put boundaries, built boundaries in my life which help me steer clear. But I share that because I understand, I understand the draw. And if we're honest, it is not appropriate for any of us to stand in any place of judgment as we see people struggling in this area. So I'm not talking about this to shame or condemn any of you. Rather, I want to invite you to consider the impact that pornography might be having on you and shaping you and your present and future relationships and to ask whether this really is God's best for you. One of the things God really loves is when people who are in slavery turn to him for help and tap into his passion to bring freedom. If this is an issue for you, there is support and there are resources available. Uh, it's worth saying that pornography is an issue which affects not just males. We recognize that there are girls and women also struggling. One thing which we are doing in November, we're starting a four-week course for men. We may at some point do something for women, but this is specifically for men. And you can find out more by contacting one of our pastors, John Bernard Carling, confidentially by emailing him at this rather long email address. And I know no one's grabbing their phones and writing it down in haste. Uh, it's rather long, so it'll be on the screens at the end after the service. Pornography is one example of how unhealthy expressions of sexuality have adverse impact on us as individuals and as a culture. And I can make a similar argument about adultery or promiscuity, the sexualization of me in the media, and advertising. The narrative of our culture is that these things are personal choices that don't really affect us and needn't affect those around us. But imagine for a moment what our culture, what this world, what this church, what our individual lives would look like if there was no cheating, no adultery, no unfaithfulness, no objectification, especially of women, also as men, as sex objects. No pornography industry. No sexual abuse. No trafficking of women. No loveless one-night stands. In other words, a society living sexually according to God's design. What would that do for the levels of trust and relationship in our lives and our communities and our families? Our sexuality, expressed as God designed it, does the very opposite of distorting and deforming our personalities. It forms us for good. Whether single or married, 
Submitting our sexuality to God's leadership grows us, it shapes us, and aligns us to the way we were designed. And honestly, everything works better that way. Our sexuality is core to who we are, but it's not the most important thing about us. We are first and foremost children of God. So sex and sexuality shape who we are, and sex and sexuality remind us of whose we are. Back to 1 Corinthians 6, we're looking at verse 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? And then verse 17. Whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. We are united with Jesus. And the word uh, used here by Paul literally means glued. It's the same word as is used in this passage for becoming one in body through sex, as in verse 16. And the spiritual tie that links the believer to the Lord. It's the same word. And throughout the New Testament, marriage, man and woman becoming one flesh through the act of sexual union is used as a picture of God's relationship with us. We all long to be pursued and wanted, to be naked and seen in our nakedness as beautiful and desirable, to be fully vulnerable and not rejected. And this intimacy is found in the gospel of Jesus, who loves us. He's seen us at our worst, including all our hidden parts and all the bits we're not proud of, the bits we're ashamed of and yet has chosen us, who has himself been vulnerable and naked on the cross on our behalf and has given himself to us unconditionally. It's no coincidence that there are parallels between our sexual and spiritual longings, the sense that we were made for intimacy and union. Our sexuality and sex itself is a picture a reminder that we belong to God in the most intimate and precious way. So in sexual immorality, we disregard the gift of sex, which paints the most beautiful picture of our relationship with God. And in doing so, we reject Paul's assertion in the passage that the most significant fact about our physical existence is that we belong to God. As Paul says at the end of this passage in verse 19, do you not know that your bodies a temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This is not a rebuke of like, look what Jesus has done for you now. You better behave yourselves. But it's an invitation to step into the intimacy he offers by honoring God with our whole selves, including our sexuality. Each of us would do well to ask, how is my sexuality shaping who I'm becoming? We've covered a lot of ground in this talk, and some of it may seem quite abstract, but what I hope I've done this evening is to set the scene for the coming talks in the series, which we'll be looking in more detail at different aspects of relationship, sexuality, and identity. But let me just finish by thinking about two ways in which we can go against the cultural tide and honor God in this area. First, we need each other. 
in a society like ours, every choice to submit our sexuality to God's will can be hard. Resisting the temptation to give in to having sex with someone we're not married to. Disagreeing with our friends at school, perhaps even university, feeling marginalized and persecuted by our friends. Not watching some of the things or looking at some of the things everyone else is watching or looking at. It can feel isolating, it can feel lonely. But as we as a church agree to following God's vision for sex, we can support each other. And so sticking with what the Bible teaches about sex can feel a little less lonely. We want this church to be one where people can be open and honest about their struggles, where we support each other as we journey together through the rough terrain of the times in which we're living, where loneliness is lessened because we are part of the family of God. And we're all needed to make this happen. We need each other. Secondly, we need God. When God feels distant, it's hard to imagine that he's really interested in the details of our lives, including our sex lives. Surrendering to God in all areas of our lives is a response to an encounter with him. The closer we feel to God, the more our desire to please him more than ourselves grows. And as I mentioned personally earlier, the more distant we become through our decisions from God, the less that becomes a reality for us. We begin to please ourselves and sort of ignore him. We need God. We need to press in to our relationship with God. One of the ways we can do that is in a moment there'll be an opportunity as always to receive prayer for anyone who wants it. This is a, a difficult subject for all of us. We have all fallen short and we're in need of God's grace. Some of you may be thinking, but you don't know. You don't know what I've done. I struggle to believe that there is hope for me, that the church would ever accept me, that God would love me. In the Bible, people came to Jesus having been involved in all manner of sexual immorality. We might think of the early believers somehow as morally upright, but they were as broken, they were as messed up as we are. The verses immediately before the passage we just read lists all sorts of ways in which they were broken. And then it goes on to say this in verse 11. But, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If you have said yes to Jesus, to the offer that Jesus extends to have a life with him, a life lived to the full, you are washed, you are sanctified, you are made clean. God can bring tremendous restoration and freedom if you will allow him permission to move in. In Japan, there is a tradition called kintsugi. Here, when we break something like a bowl or a plate or a cup, what do we do? We get the brush and dustpan, put it in the bin, dispose of it, and move on. In kintsugi, the plate, cup, bowl, or whatever is considered important, really important and precious, even if it's broken. And not only is it repaired, but the cracks are filled, not with superglue that's transparent and disappears and try and make it more or less as good as it could be, but rather filled with an adhesive mixed with gold dust. The effect is that the cracks appear filled with gold. 
the gold-filled cracks of a once-broken item are a testament to its history, and there is a beauty in something which was broken being restored. This is what God can do for us. He can restore the most broken life and reveal a beauty that in our own strength we may not think possible. You might say that those of us who follow Jesus are kintsugi believers. If you look at someone near you, recognize a follower of Jesus, like, you're a kintsugi believer, and actually so am I. As we come to God, we are all broken. We can't fix ourselves. But what he does is he begins to restore our lives to his original design is nothing short of beautiful.